0: This is author Raymond V. Feist. Hi, this is R. Scott Baker. This is Anthony Ryan. The Grim Tidings podcast welcomes Delilah S. Dawson to the show. Delilah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is literary agent Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media Group. This is David Anthony Durham.
1: Hi, this is Melanie Matters. Hi,
0: this is Brian Staveley. Hello, this is Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall. Hi, this is Jeff Salyards. Hi, this is Michael R. Fletcher. The Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Stephen Erickson to the show. Thank you for inviting me I'm looking forward to... This episode is sponsored by Lucifer Star by C.T. Phipps and Michael Sutkus. Cassius Mass was once the greatest star pilot of the Creus Archduchy. After losing everything in the war with the interstellar commonwealth, he comes to realize he's been fighting for the wrong side. Now a navigator on an interstellar freight hauler, he tries to escape his past. Unfortunately, some things refuse to stay buried, and he soon finds himself working for the very people who destroyed his homeland. Lucifer Star by C.T. Phipps and Michael Sutkus is the first novel in the Lucifer Star series, a dark sci-fi space opera set in the galaxy of aliens, war, politics, and slavery. From the best-selling author of The Rules of Supervillainy comes an intergalactic sci-fi epic that will leave you spellbound. Lucifer Star by C.T. Phipps and Michael Sutkus. Buy your copy today on Amazon in print or Kindle ebook, or listen on Audible. Perfect for fans of Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, or other gritty sci-fi adventures. Lucifer Star. Available now
2: from Crossroad Press. If you're a storyteller, you need to check out Archivos, a new story mapping and development tool from Wonderthink Studios. Archivos provides storytellers with a unique opportunity, the chance to actually see the network of interaction between the story elements of their settings. Through Archivos' interactive narrative maps, Storytellers can discover and explore the patterns and structures that illuminate their stories. Archivos even allows you to share those maps with your readers, providing an utterly unique and compelling format for fan engagement. Archivos really is the story mapping and development tool for today's storytellers. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A R C H I V O S. Dot .digital Archivos, your stories illuminated
0: the year is 2020 the south has won the civil war great britain and china have maintained their empires american slavery was abolished in the late 20th century while steam-powered machines and electricity make up the bulk of modern technology in the shadows of the confederacy there is magic and strange, demonic creatures wander the slums of Charleston feeding on the poor. Carolina Demonic Confederate Shadows by author Brian Barr A novel of alternative history set in a dark world not much unlike our own, where corruption, racism, sexism, homophobia, and corporate takeovers abound, as well as lustful demons, necromancers, and the undead. Carolina Demonic Confederate Shadows by Brian Barr the first book in the genre bending dystopian adventure series that combines elements of steampunk, horror, urban fantasy, and the occult. Carolina Demonic Confederate Shadows, available now on print and ebook at brianbarbooks.com. That's B R I A N B A R R books.com. Pick up your copy today. We know how much you like to win free stuff as we routinely bring the goods here on the Grim Tidings podcast. And today we've got a special chance for not one, but ten of our listeners to win a free paperback copy of the new dark fantasy anthology Nine Parts Bluster and Other Stories by author A.Z. Anthony. Nine Parts Bluster and Other Stories features short fiction tales of madness, myth, and mayhem with a sprinkle of black humor. Fans of Joe Abercrombie or Robert E. Howard will enjoy this collection of four stories by up-and-coming fantasy author A.Z. Anthony. To enter, just head over to azanthony.com giveaway that's azanthony.com slash giveaway. Fill out the form and earn up to three chances to win a paperback copy of this awesome fantasy short story collection. Deadline to enter is September 12th, 2017. Open worldwide and you must be 18 to enter. That's azanthony.com giveaway. Nine parts bluster and other stories by AZ Anthony. Available now from Amazon on paperback and Kindle.
1: Hi, this is Anna Smith-Spark, author of The Court of Broken Knives, and you're listening to The Grim Tidings Podcast.
0: It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Muffini.
3: And I'm Philip Overby.
0: Our guest today is a fantasy novelist based out of London, England. She's worked previously as a bureaucrat, an English teacher, and a Finnish model, all the while finding time to gig out on things like Dungeons and & Dragons and a steady diet of epic fantasy fiction, including authors like R. Scott Baker, Stephen Erickson, Ursula Le Guin, and many others. Eventually, she put down her player's handbook and monster manual and picked up a few textbooks, earning a B.A. in Classics, an M.A. in History, and a Ph.D. in English Literature. Her Grimdark fantasy debut, The Court of Broken Knives, book one of the Empires of Dust series, dropped June 29th from Harper Voyager UK and drops August 15th in the US from Orbit Books. Author Miles Cameron called The Court of Broken Knives gritty and glorious. Author Andy Remick called it grim, gritty, and fast-paced. And past guest Michael R. Fletcher proclaims, all hail the Queen of Grimdark. You can find her online at courtofbrokenknives.org. She's on Twitter at Queen of Grimdark, Skyping in from London, England, The Grimdark tidings podcast proudly welcomes for her first dish ever podcast interview dr anna smith spark welcome to the show
1: hi hi rob hi philip hi
0: queen of grimdark all hail
1: <laughs> thank you thank you
0: where did you get that handle lady?
1: where did i get that handle um it was actually mike fletcher's idea i can't even remember where it came from oh i think it was because there was a bit of a thing about um me and deborah R. wolf both being the queen of grimdark and then mike was like "Ha ah, ha, you know the queen of grimdark twitter name has not his twitter handle isn't then no one has the queen of grimdark twitter handle so um yeah it's actually all mike's it was all just mike's idea but <laughs> i really i really like it it's, um, i was anna libertina before and libertina is the roman goddess of death
2: so Sweet.
1: um it's probably not that different but I, I like it 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 tells people what i'm about also
0: you have a penchant for Grimdark, uh, so far, we can tell, with your debut novel, a court, uh, court yes. of, The Court of Broken Knives. Uh, who would you say is the king of Grimdark? If you're the queen, who's the,
1: who's oh, the king? Oh, um, See, Ars- uh, Scott Baker by okay. knives. Well, in some ways. Um, it depends. The kind of... <laughs> I mean Mike Fletcher is um I did a blurb for him recently. I did a review for him recently. Someone called him someone said something about oh this um Swarman Steel cements him as the god of Grimdark, which um I mean he goes further than anyone else with his I, I hate him, he gets he does stuff that I haven't <laughs> even thought about we too, daring so. to write. <laughs> but um I mean he just takes it so far, but it's just so human as well. It's just his but Baker is the god. Baker is oh, he's just his sense of things and his world and yeah he is kind of he is just absolutely he's just it did absolutely.
0: you get a chance to uh, dive into the unholy consult that just came out
1: i haven't managed to read the unholy consult because i have oh. this problem when i read baker that i start basically trying to write as if i'm baker because it's ah. like i will try and make this sound like baker because he is so good <laughs> and that kind of goes <laughs> totally wrong so um no that's i'm look, i've got um going down on holiday for a week and i'm taking a week off so i'm going to try and going to make some headway into it then but i'd start channeling him and it just doesn't work gotcha if i'm reading him when i'm writing
0: so yeah so when you're right so when you're writing you cannot read too much
1: yeah when i'm writing i have to read i read a lot of fi- i read a lot of non-fiction because i get right. really i just start Channeling people. I'm really good at prestige, so it starts going all over the place. And I had that was fine it was really difficult. I was finding it really difficult reading fantasy. So then I thought, haha, I will not read some fantasy. I will read George Eliot. So I will reread Middlemarch. And I started reading Middlemarch. And then I was like, my God, this is getting even worse because now I'm trying to write like George Eliot. And believe me, George <laughs> Eliot, <laughs> she's a very talented writer. But if she tried to write Grimdark fantasy, it would probably not have worked out very well.
0: You may be the first doctor we've had on the show, Phil. Have we had a doctor on before?
3: Um, yeah, me. Oh, okay. I'm just kidding. I'm not a doctor. No. <laughs> I'm a. Uh, I'm the grim. I'm gonna call myself the Grim Dark Toilet. That's gonna be my <laughs> new Twitter handle. Everybody, take a shit on me, the grim dark
0: <laughs> Oh, that's terrible.
3: Uh, well, yeah, I've got a
1: PhD in Victorian occultism. Which
0: wow. is, that's cool.
3: It's
1: a ridiculous thing to have a PhD in. Yeah.
3: That's pretty That's pretty grimdark. What's the coolest occult thing you can drop on us?
1: Oh my goodness. Um, see, it was actually totally uncool. There was this bunch of people called the, called the theosophists, called theosophists, who were just, actually, they were the geekiest, nerdiest kind of, I mean, they really believed things, like someone would lose a brooch and they'd sort of beg the greatest ended masters to find in Tibet <laughs> to find it for them. And mm. then, no, no, the next day, it would turn up and that was amazing. It was clearly evidence that the great ascended masters existed, and not like they just misplaced the brooch. And, <laughs> and these are all, these, these are the people running British India in the in beginning of the 20th century. These are people running running the British Empire. It was actually really completely not particularly cool. Although my dad some, my dad knows someone who claimed to have um, worked a magical ritual based on Anglo-Saxon magic to bring down the moon goddess, and then to have lived happily with her in a small house in South London for the next 10 years. Hmm.
3: Wow, that's a, that's a yeah. nice uh, thing to put in your hat. Yes.
0: <laughs> put that on your resume. I summoned moon deities on the weekend. <laughs> well, we might as well talk books here. That's kind of what we do here on the Grim Tidings yeah. podcast. So, Anna Spithspark, Dr. Anna Spithspark, if you could maybe tell us a little bit about The Court of Broken Knives, book one of the Empires of Dust trilogy, and why you think our listeners should maybe give that book a read.
1: Uh, okay the court of broken knives is either a astonishing lyrical poetic masterpiece of dark fantasy or the most disgusting nihilistic horrifying there are no redeeming features to this book gorefest at all plus the woman has no idea how to punctuate depending on whether you listen to the five star reviews or the one star reviews on amazon <laughs> um, <laughs> there's no middle ground here No, it's um it's I mean, in some ways, it's heroic fantasy. It's just from a slightly different point of view. Um, it's very traditional heroic fantasy. We have mercenaries. We have a young man with a mysterious past. We have my fantasy city, so lost, which is the fantasy city just absolutely ramped up to 11. It's, um, it's every fantasy trope you can imagine. And then things unfold in possibly slightly less predictable ways. There's a lot of violence. I studied classics. I read a lot of military history. I'm hugely influenced by things like the Iliad and the campaigns of Alexander the Great. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of just there's a lot of descriptions of violence in a very poetic way, verging on kind of stream of consciousness. A lot. It's it's about trying to explore the emotional experience of being involved in extreme violence. So it's trying to explore the kind of mental processes, how one might be feeling. In an incredibly violent world, engaging in violence and why why violence may be desirable, my engaging in violence or and why following someone into battle, even though you know you are likely to, I mean you you are killing people and you are like highly likely to die. Why people do that and what the appeal and the attraction is of violence? Because if you look at all the great, if you look at all the kind of great. Mythic traditions. If you look at the Iliad, if you look at the Eddas, if you look at kind of, if you look at most poetry or mythology throughout world history, actually, it's well, a lot of it acknowledges that war is bad. It's also violence is absolutely at the kind of pinnacle of most human societies. And the book, Bre- *Broken Knives*, is trying to kind of unpack that a bit and explore that what it is about violence that's actually so desirable and that violence is fun basically it's trying to explore that why, why violence is fun why engaging in extreme violence has always been considered fun and kind of cool and if you're good at it you take the top spot socially you get the girls you get the kudos even though at the same time pretty much everybody is if you say to someone would, is violence a good thing pretty much everyone say no say so is war a good thing or should we find other ways of resolving issues people say well war is bad is killing someone good? No, killing someone is not good. Would you want to go and fight if I told you said to you guys now, hey, you go and go and charge at that bloke armed only with a sword and see if you can chop his head off before he chops you head up, your head off, you'd probably tell me to fuck off. And yet people have done it. And people have people have always done it and people always will do it. Even though it is absolutely nonsensical.
3: It's interesting because uh I've read a lot of pretty dark stuff over the years and Uh, the opening to The Court of Broken Knives is probably one of the bloodiest scenes I've read in a book. Uh, It's really remarkable how much blood is (laughs) shed in the first few pages.
1: You should see book two. You should see the end of book two.
3: (laughs) Could you tease readers about what kind of grimness they may experience in the book? I, I, I can tell from firsthand experience that the opening is extremely bloody, but could you tell about uh, what other kind of grim, dark action might they find in the book?
1: Okay, so it's, yeah, it is extremely visceral about violence and about the uh, sort of extremely visceral about the emotion, of visceral about violence. It's also, I mean, some people have kind of said it's, it's a book without hope. And it's certainly, all the characters in it have flaws and issues and are not what you'd call nice people. It's kind of difficult to think of someone who is the hero, but I see them very much as they are people living their lives, and the way most people lead their lives leads to other people being damaged and being trampled on. I mean that—that's kind of for me at the centre of Grimdark is the real, the real, the just the awareness that. Life's fairly shit, and most of the choices we make in life involve other people being hurt. I mean, for Western consumers, you know, we're sitting here having this conversation on computers, most of the components of which were dug out of bits of beautiful rainforests in Africa or in China by people, often by children, basically in, debt, slave, in sort of debt slavery, in incredibly appalling working conditions, which were then put together into a computer. um probably by children in places like China and India again kind of in absolutely appalling conditions we're using a huge amount of electricity which is pumping huge amounts of co2 into the atmosphere and everything we do is totally selfish and is trampling on other people it's unless you go off and live kind of some kind of vegan life in a small holding off the grid you are everything you do tramples on other people we kind of talk about people like we talk about sort of people like Trump, Donald Trump as kind of, you know, trampling on other people. But we all do it. We just, everything that we do, in the end, somewhere down the line, people are going to get hurt. And a lot of things that we do aren't particularly nice to people. A lot of the decisions we make aren't great decisions. We make really bad decisions, which then lead to even worse decisions, which eventually lead to things like, oh, I don't know, the Iraq war. Um, and then we try and make that situation slightly better. And it inevitably gets worse and worse and worse. And, or we make decisions that are just selfish. We decide my child is more important than a child and their child in another part of the world. My child is more important than 200 people's lives in another part of the world, because that's the kind of decision making we make all the time. And we have, we make unthinkingly or we make thinkingly. And that, that kind of reality is at again, at the sort of, at the, in the center of broken knives, the, awareness that even to do good will may or probably will involve and lead to other people suffering and it's that that horrible awareness of that if that makes any sense it's extremely depressing in some ways
3: but yeah I'm that's happy. that's probably the most depressing thing we've heard on this show <laughs> and we've we've talked about some pretty fucking depressing things yeah are you, you try to
1: you try and accept, I mean, accepting that is that that kind of having that self-awareness of it is at least the first kind of step to step to some kind of having some kind of trying to redeem yourself from him a bit. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's that. Oh, there's this wonderful metaphor of um. it's actually from a, great, a very early British author, a Saxon author called The Venerable Bede, who has this um, this thing about uh, life is. If you're trying to imagine life, so you have this kind of the dark you have the dark night and then you have this bird flying through the night and it flies into a great a great mead hall, a great feasting hall, and for a couple of moments it's in this bright light and there's fire candlelight and firelight and music and dancing and food and drink and this you know the smell of wine and beer and roasting meat. And then the bird flies out back into the dark again. And that's life, that brief little moment between the darkness. And Terry Pratchett get hold, gets hold of this and says about one of his characters, in this person's case, the bird had done something revolting in its dinner en route. And that, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I kind of, I kind of, I guess I kind of do believe that, which is, again, makes me sound incredibly depressed. But then you have to hang on to life. Like, that makes life so valuable. You know, um, actually, a Jehovah's Witness came round to my house this morning trying to invite us to some huge jehovah's witness convention in london and someone like that okay i mean she her whole life is based on denying herself everything on the assumption that if she just denies herself everything she'll get to heaven was if you if you believe that your life is just some kind of brief meaningless flicker of light and then it's nothing <laughs> you just hang on to life life is fucking wonderful just hang on to being alive
3: yeah, because wrong. you know this
1: is it this is it just absolutely hang on to being alive it's kind of because life in the material world is so wonderful and yes everything you do hurts other people but you know you have to just hang on to the fact you are alive and yes there's a huge cost to that but god you are alive and the life is wonderful and hang on to that and that's what i'm trying to write as well i think there's kind of there is stuff about beauty and put of broken knives there's stuff about happiness there's stuff about emotion there's quite a lot there's a there's romance there's love there's Sex. There's pleasure. There's pleasure in sex. There's pleasure in clothes. People go shopping. People talk about food and drink, and because they they are alive and they are enjoying being alive, and life is a wonderful thing. It's just bleak as well.
0: <laughs> well, this has been an emotional roller coaster so far. I'm
1: actually yeah, putting everyone off the book? Here. <laughs> <laughs> it's
3: life a, it's so life. Some
1: really, really cheap tit jokes in it as well, just to kind of try
3: and lower so the tone life... a bit. So life sucks, but...
1: <laughs> life sucks, but life's wonderful.
3: Okay. Yeah. That's what we'll title the episode. Right?
1: Yeah, life <laughs> sucks, but life's wonderful. <laughs> plus, there are, and there's, plus there are some tit some knob jokes in there, just kind of life the tone
0: Well, did you set out to write a Grimdark novel? You're like, Grimdark's cool, I'm going to write a Grimdark novel. Or did you just kind of write a book that fell into that vein?
1: I didn't set out to write anything. I started... right. I hadn't... I've written elsewhere about how I wrote all the time when i was a teenager when i was a child and i was a teenager i wrote all the time and looking back they were everything i wrote was fairly dark i when i was a teenager I went through a stage of writing what looking back was basically torture porn i was writing all kind i was writing pretty dark unpleasant stuff there was a lot of it was graphic novel scripts actually weirdly which weren't designed to be illustrated they were just the kind of the Descriptions of the of the, each picture and the, the kind of mechanics of the graphic novel script was part of what I was writing. Um, but yeah, I mean, they were actually kind of pretty, they were influenced by the kind of most extreme stuff in things like 2000 AD and the kind of small press stuff that came out of 2000 AD. So they were actually pretty extreme sexual horror stories, some of them. But anyway, so I got to my late, to my early 20s, and I stopped writing fiction completely. Um, and then Really quite recently, I think it was about four years ago now, I just sat down and started writing. And I didn't have any sense of what I was writing. I started writing a scene that came into my mind of these guys, a group of soldiers in a desert, walking through a desert. And then there's kind of an act of extreme violence. And I just started writing this. I didn't really know where it was going. And then there was a city... They were walking to a city. They were going to a city. They so describing the city, but I didn't really you know. I didn't know why they were going to the city. I didn't know what was what the plot was. There was a man in the city, and there was some kind of intrigue going on. But I really didn't know what was happening. The whole thing was just unfolding itself as I started writing it. So I didn't know where it was going. I didn't know what. I didn't know who the characters were. They were all just emerging as I was writing them. And then I think two of the characters, Marith and Thalia, I think have actually always been with me I think they were the kind of hero and heroine of stories I was telling myself when I was a child they've always been with me in the back of my mind in one form or another and they just kind of fell into the book and then slowly the story just unfolded itself so I was actually discovering the world and discovering where they were going and what their motivations were and what the secrets were they were hiding and what was going to happen to them as they were which was amazing I didn't do any world building beforehand the whole world was just I really was discovering the world as I went along it was kind of it almost kind of felt like you know when you're playing a sort of a computer game and you're slowly discovering more of the world it felt almost like that like this world was just kind of unfolding itself in front of me and slowly the characters were just sort of folding on emerging and I was beginning to understand them more and more what they were doing and what their what all the different layers of what they would do, what they said they were doing, and then what they thought, what actually they thought they were doing. And then beneath that, what subconsciously they were doing, all the kind of the stories that they were telling, and then actually the realities behind those stories. And it was all just unfolding. And in a year, it just kind of came together to form this book. And I sort of slowly, it wasn't right until right at the end, I really understood actually where everything thing the ultimate conclusion to where it was heading, what the what actually the book was about. So then I sort of went back and made things more explicit in places. But it was a really kind of weirdly organic process, which just kind of emerged in front of me as I was writing.
0: Sounds like you kind of just pantsed it, and then it just started kind of gelling together.
1: It did. It just gelled together. It really does feel like it was just all kind of in my mind already, just kind of just... I kind of I mean I studied classics a lot. You know, I had this when I was at this is wonderful year when I was at university doing my undergraduate degree in classics, where I was um so I was studying um the Iliad, the Odyssey, and then I, my special subject in my third year was the campaigns of Alexander the Great and his successors. And then so I'd be studying kind of Achilles and, and the great, you know, the great battle perch of the Iliad, and then I'd be studying Alexander. And the kind of the military genius of Alexander all day, and then I'd come home and I'd be doing this David Gamble inference role playing, sort of D and D games, obsessively every night. And I think it's just all been the kind of there in my mind. It's kind of these books are, I guess, the kind of all everything I've read and studied just kind of coming together to form some kind of to form a story.
3: Were your D D sessions as bloody as your books? Were you just they were shit. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot
1: of stuff in there. <laughs> And very nice isn't kidding shit, but um I played a chaotic neutral who then became chaotic evil, priestess of the nameless gods, Charisma twenty seven. Mm. She couldn't do Ooh. anything. She was stunningly beautiful, she couldn't actually do anything. But um yeah, she just went around being the most beautiful woman who'd ever lived and ever will lived, being a high priestess of the satanic nameless gods. Which was fun. That's awesome.
3: That's good,
0: that's it was good awesome.
1: Final. It was absolutely awesome. <laughs>
0: And you don't play anymore D and I
1: I don't. I was absolutely obsessed with it. We're all living in a student house together, and we just played it all the time. And then, the rare occasions we went out, I'd actually be kind of sitting in the corner, telling myself stories based on the D and D game because it was just so much more fun than doing anything in real life. It was just absolutely obsessional. It took up my life. Just, I was literally—I mean, I was doing nothing apart from studying and doing D and D for a while. And then it all fell apart when we finished university. Um, and sometimes I think, God, it'd be great to do it again. I'd love to do DD again. But I don't think it would be the same. It was, just, it was just this magical couple of years where it all just, the group of us just worked. And so the DM didn't take it very seriously. And as you can probably guess. Um, so one of the other characters was basically playing someone, was playing a character based on Drust the Legend. And he got up. So we were all like level 40 or something. I mean, there was one time where he... I can't remember his name he was just based on Josh the Legend he did he did Caffetate a Dragon with one blow of his axe and um, it was just it was that kind of level we are in this massive siege and we had this we had a castle to defend and there were there were three of us were playing and one non-player character and we had a wall of, it was a square castle square keep we had a wall each we had a side each and we successfully defended the castle from an entire orc army just the four of us it was just I mean it was, <laughs> it, was it was the opposite of any kind of Attempts at realism or complexity it was just it was just it was just so much fun and i don't think it would be the same i think it would be yeah no it was just awesome but no i right now
0: you are a complete nerd like me and phil
1: i'm a complete nerd. you yeah, no i'm a complete nerd i have i'm just i'm a total nerd <laughs> <laughs> when i was Horrors. a child brother was really into warhammer and i used to get dragged used to kind of go and spend hours hanging around the warhammer shop staring at all the little figurine painted figurines in the cases and reading his copies of white dwarf and stuff yeah and i've always been a nerd
3: yeah as far as um being a debut author this is kind of a new thing that i've noticed uh especially with darker fiction there seems to be an expectation that there has to be an immediate impact upon release um, several of our past guests would would probably fit that bill as is coming out with a, very strongly getting a lot of buzz uh, do you feel there's a pressure to to be highly praised upon release in order to maintain a lengthy career or do you think uh, authors can still have that slow burn if if needed?
1: It is kind of scary because I think it is more and more about. Well, in the end, it is more and more about your first kind of six-month sales. I mean, people have even talked about things like your first week sales. It becomes more and more like the kind of film sales where, you know, if your film doesn't – if a film doesn't isn't a blockbuster in the first week, it's opening weekend, then it's a failure. If a television series isn't you know, some kind of massive, massive water-cooler moment thing in its first series, it's, it's a failure and – because, every, yeah, I know, I think there is more pressure on authors. The idea that someone might grow, might become you know, a cult author or might become an author that grows a fan base slowly, I think is becoming more and more difficult. It is all kind of much more short term. I mean, the social media has been hugely, hugely positive for authors and for People, I mean, like yourselves, you know, we couldn't have been doing this up until fairly recently, having podcasts and the Grimdirt Writers and Readers group on Facebook and things. And, you know, all of that is hugely positive, but it's also quite frightening and quite negative in some ways because it does kind of require you to do more and more and more PR. Whereas once, you know, you could have, you wrote a book and the book would have got written reviews in print media that would have come out later. And then the book would slow, book could slowly grow to become kind of slowly to become much of a cold. It's so because of things like social media, the fact you can have reviews up so quickly and then they can be so permanent. And the fact that the readership as a whole can join in. And of course, it's the same as for music and film as well, that, you know, because people can blog and can review and the things like Goodreads, because just anyone can make comments, they don't even have to have read the book you know it does all become much more frenetic and much more kind of much more about like oh so how many good reviews ratings have you got how many amazon reviews have you got how many amazon reviews have you got within a week of publication and there's a, there's a channel there was a radio 4 broadcast with a guy called john lancaster who's a british novelist a literary novelist um and he was talking about how you know, he's a serious literary novelist he's kind of he's sort of book a prize shortlist, kind of gets reviews, it get writes articles for the New York for the London Review of Books and things. And he was saying it's, you know, it's just an exhausting because not only do you have to write your novels, you also have to be you have a full time job being your own PR agent because it's just twenty-four hour kind of social media internet stuff now. And I think that is driving it. It's wonderful in some ways, as I say, but it is also quite frightening in other ways that you can't just kind of write a book and then a couple of years later people are saying god that's a really good book it's just kind of it is very expected to be very upfront well, i mean i enjoy i really do enjoy the promotion of this stuff though but it, it's quite a lot of work
0: well i'd say you've done a great job of uh, the the buzz that i saw before the book even come out i mean there were multiple people posting pictures of the book when they got it in the mail you send out some advanced copies to a lot yeah. of folks so i saw people posting pictures of it and uh reviews and all sorts of good things. So uh, I've pretty much been seeing Court of Broken Knives all over my social media stream for the past couple of months. So Yeah, it got to the got point where you need to apologize
1: to for people for the number of times it's on my cover. Seriously. Yes. But um I mean it's the wonderful thing about all of that is because I was a total nerd. I grew up in a really small town and there weren't many female teenage total nerds. So, I'd be in the library and there's like the little collection. I was really into graphic novels when I was in my teens. I was reading loads of things like The Sandman and Hellraiser and Hellblazer and all of that. And I was really into kind of goth and extreme metal, metal music. And again, there weren't many people into that kind of stuff in Bishop's Store for particularly not 14 year old girls. And um, I was like, I was very, I almost wrote little notes kind of saying, Dear two other people who I've noticed might be taking out the copies, the library's copies of. Um, hellraiser of the hellblazer comic books um who are you <laughs> please can we meet and it was it was the wimpy at that point they went this was before you know there weren't even any cafes at this point they was like could maybe we could like meet in like the wimpy next friday and just kind of talk because i want to know who you are because i'm so lonely because all the other girls like everyone else i'm at school with I was no girls school and everyone else is in to take that and kind of um that um judy bloom and things and there's just me um and now of course you don't have that the um when I discovered particularly the grimdark writers and readers group on facebook it's like wow people all over the world like you guys who have the same kind of tastes as me it's like and it was just this ama- it was amazing it's amazing social media is amazing for that for just actually being able to kind of actually meet, meet people and build communities and um meet other people who are complete geeks finding your tribe him. yes yes finding your tribe yeah and it is wonderful and i've absolutely you know, i just embrace that totally i love Love the kind of friends I've got on social media. I don't actually have many friends in real life. It's all, it's all <laughs> social media. People.
3: Yeah, yeah, me too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the book has been out in the UK for a month now. As of we're recording it right now, it's been out for one month in the UK. How has the reception of the book
1: gone so far? It's been amazing. It's, I mean, people have absolutely loved it. Some people have a couple of people have absolutely hated it, which I kind of expect. Jokes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got, I mean, you know, the classic, you get the kind of people saying, oh, it was a very violent book. And you can't kind of, wrote, well, well, yeah. Um, I mean, that really, you know, there's really bizarre reads reviews where you get people saying, like, I, do, I don't like grimdark books. You know, oh, I don't like chit-lit book, books. But, you know, I don't feel the need to kind of fill my Facebook reviews with. <laughs> Picked up this chit-lit book, decided it was a bit crap after two pages. But, like, didn't read it again. But, um, yeah, I mean, but, you know, the reception has gone amazingly. People have said the most incredibly nice things about it, uh, about, um, actually, nice is perhaps the wrong word. I um, you know, people, actually, someone put, someone said, you know, people have started talking about me. They do, they talk about people like George R. R. Martin and George, and Joe Bacombi and Mark Lawrence in the and then they talk about me in the same breath and. People sort of saying the most amazing, amazingly, amazingly positive things about it. Um, And just really getting it as well. People really, again, some people don't get it, but most people really do that kind of it's much more complicated than just there are some really nasty people and some really violent things happen and that's it. That There's much, you know, it's trying, it's looking at life, it's looking at the wonderful things about life as well as the violence. And people are really getting that. People are really responding it to it so positively. It's just, oh, it's just, it's just been absolutely amazing. Really
0: wonderful. And then uh, sales-wise, did you think you're hitting those numbers that you think the publishers are kind of looking for?
1: I am not finding out about sales at all. I'm actually, I'm not even going on Goodreads and Amazon particularly to look at what you know the reviews are saying because I don't want to know at this point. I've got a contract to write three books. I'm currently writing, I've written book two, I'm on book three. I would love further contracts, but you know, at the moment I'm just doing what I'm doing. I don't want to get obsessive about how I say I was doing. Oh my God, someone's selling more than me. Oh my God, we didn't sell so many this week. I'm trying to keep plugging away at getting people, keeping it go, keeping the kind of the publicity going and people, the awareness going, but I'm not, I don't, I don't want to know yet. I don't want to know. I kind of, um, I think it would just get, it would just get horrible. Um, I'm not really temperamentally inclined to kind of want to find out if i find if. i just i just i i don't want to know, <laughs> I don't want to know.
0: <laughs> well,
3: I just looked and uh ah! it's not uh it's not looking good I'll tell you. <laughs> life is grim <laughs> <laughs> no we have good we have faith in uh you'll do well and okay. we're we're putting all the chips on you
1: so oh, to speak so you.
3: so don't fuck it up
1: no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh fuck
3: it up! <laughs> <laughs> Wanted to talk a little bit more about grimdark. Um, as someone that's uh, firmly implanted in the genre, do you do you feel like it's changing at all? Do you feel like it's kind of sticking with the original tropes people pinned on it early early on, or you know, uh, I've noticed there tends to be more humour in Grimdark as as time goes on. Have you noticed any changes at all?
1: Ooh, um, see, I think the humour is fairly necessary. I mean, I appreciate kind of neither Baker nor Eric, Steve Erickson, who I, there's always this thing about you, Steve Erickson and Grimdark, and I, I don't know, but, um, you know, Baker is a very serious writer, but there are kind of, I think there's more humour in him than people realise. But that kind of black humor has all I think is it is kind of central people a lot of people have this kind of idea that grimdark is just um horrible things happen and you kind of want to point out well in that case you know something like Elizabeth Moon's The Deeds of Paxonarion there's you know, some horrible things happen in that that does not mean it's grimdark there's some bizarre thing someone's saying is um some are uh, some of the books of um The Wheel of Time grimdark because there's some part of the book too there's that kind of the people who come over the People come over from the other side of the world and they enslave people and there's kind of they particularly enslave women and there's kind of elements of kind of sexual slavery and people are like oh does that mean it's grimdark like well grimdark does not just mean something horrible happens because otherwise pretty much all fantasy is grimdark because usually something nasty has to happen in fantasy because it's otherwise it wouldn't be very exciting really Um, but that kind of cynicism and humour and awareness and self-awareness, I think, is fairly crucial to it. That, for one thing, otherwise, it just becomes really boring because it's just, oh, then something disgusting happened and then something else disgusting happened. Oh, and I'm going to fling in some sexual violence as well because that's even more disgusting. And then something else disgusting happened and then they all died. I mean, you kind of <laughs> – that having that awareness, that kind of absolute cynical awareness and that, black, that kind of real dark humor. I mean, Abercrombie has a lot of humor. And, of course yeah. – um, and there's more humour in um, Game of Thrones than I think. Again, some people kind of notice at first, um, although it is much more serious. And then you know, Mark Lawrence's stuff is hilariously funny. It's just um, kind of pretty vile as well. And that that awareness. I mean, if you read something, if you read Prince of Thorns completely straight, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't want to know what kind of person you'd be if you read that, thinking, ooh, this is kind, of, kind, of, kind of serious." serious statement by this author because it's you know it's clearly not it's very kind of you know the famous rapes passage and things it's meant to be a really kind of sick humor that's aware completely self-aware of kind of these people are vile but what do you expect and if you didn't have that element of humor I think it would just become it would just it would just be just boring really so I think that's always that kind of cynical humor has always been part of it um I mean, it seems to be becoming more mainstream. I guess they're kind of people have noticed that my publishers have been very happy to sort of talk about broken knives as a grimdark novel. And again, some you know, there's that sort of thing. People kind of say, oh, people occasionally give these sort of lectures about, oh, grimdark was originally meant as a pejorative term and kind of as a joke term, and kind of you people, why on earth are you doing taking it seriously? But um, I think it is becoming kind of more acceptable or something. It's um, it's kind of like something like goth or black metal or something it's having its little moment where actually it's kind of okay to admit you're into that sort of stuff and i'm sure it will kind of become maybe less maybe it'll become less fashionable but it seems to be being fairly fashionable at the moment which is quite nice but yeah no i mean it's um people have always written grimdark if you look at something like i would point out to people if you look at the iliad it's um it's absolutely just kind of it's totally self-aware it's incredibly violent it's incredibly bleak it's got humor it is kind of classic the Iliad is grim dark epic fantasy basically people have always written that kind of very dark always been interest in listening to that kind of very dark but also very kind of self-aware and more complex form of kind of fantasy and writing about war and about battles it's that I think it's self-aware grim dark, grim dark fantasy I think is probably more literary than a lot of than kind of very kind of, there's an awful term noble bright going around which seems to be the antithesis of grimdark but grimdark is much more literary because it's much more aware of the complexities of reality and the complexities of people's lives and people's psyches and that kind of literary more intellect more kind of more intelligent quality also means it's got more humor in it because intelligent self-aware people tend to have better sense of humor basically
3: yeah i think the the, the grimdark that people tend to latch on to has this kind of layer layered uh, element to it where yeah. it's not necessarily intended to be read as straight violence or straight uh whatever a bleakness it's more of a statement on something deeper than that and-
1: yeah i mean mike fletcher's the kind of classic example if you read beyond redemption as like this is what Mike deeply believes as a kind of you know, if you read that as a if you read that completely uncritically critically straight, you I don't know what, what you think, you know. I mean god, the end of Swarm and Steel. If you read Swarm and Steel without any kind of Mike's book that's lately third of his in his Manifest illusions book trilogy that's coming out in um, well it's not a trilogy, it's a standalone in the same world, but it's coming out in August. You know, that if you read the ending of that straight, you just think this guy is diseased. And but actually, you
3: know, kind of, well, yeah. well,
1: yeah, I mean, OK, sometimes I think of some of the conversations we Mike have had, but, um, you know, it's just that absolute, it's kind of, you know, we're all actually kind of very thoughtful, liberal, nice people. It's that we're just completely aware of kind of what, <laughs> what, what the reality of life is like. Yeah. And that, yeah, I mean, it's not, it'd be horrifying to think of someone reading a lot of this stuff, you know, there's bits and, like yeah the first chapter of broken knives you know it, it can could be read completely straight as a kind of brother fascist celebration of death and i am sure a couple of people will read it like that but it's not it's yeah it's a kind of statement on attitudes to violence it's more complicated than just whoa this is great
3: i don't know if you've ever read celine the french writer but elements of your writing style reminded me of him is it's very like in your face like dah. But it's meant to make a point. It's not necessarily celebrating the fact. It's more of a statement on something.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a statement on, it's a sort of almost a statement on heroic fantasy that, you know, they're kind of, they usually are, in fact, other ways to go to avoid, uh, to get around conflict. Kind of a lot of kind of very straight heroic fantasy very uncritical heroic fantasy. It's just, it is sort of, you know, that all that kind of, like, the way of the warrior and the kind of, like, the glory of fighting and knowing that you are fighting for the just cause and blah. I mean, that's all bullshit. That's all complete bullshit. It's just people justifying the fact that they like fucking killing people. It's not kind of... (laughs) You can always find some reason to claim... (laughs) You know, you can always find some reason to justify... Why you just done something fucking horrible to someone? There were very few wars. I mean, the Second World War is possibly the only war that, with hindsight, is more, was morally justified. And even then, at the time, you know, most people most people did not fight in the Second World War because they knew about the Holocaust and because they knew about Auschwitz and because they knew about the Japanese camps in the Far East. Most people who fought in the Second World War had very little idea of what was going on it was not about some kind of I am the shining light of truth and goodness and we are smiting these evil people because they are truly evil it was this is war these fuckers want to invade us so we're going to fucking invade them first that's kind of, that's what war is <laughs> sort of. but when people in Britain still go on about you know Henry V at Agincourt Oh, there's kind of a great moment in British history. There was a bloke who, you know, he invaded bloody France and got pissed off at the French the French didn't particularly like this. You know, it's kind of whoa. It's um war is just there is not just there is no such thing as heroic warfare. Warfare is just people fucking killing each other and then finding a justification for it. And that, yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to say. That kind of pretty much I'm kind of (laughs) violence is an absolutely appalling thing. It's just it's also it's also incredibly fun. It's, I mean, it's undeniable. Writing a piece of violence is an extremely fun activity. Reading a piece of violence is an extremely fun activity. I was just reading a fantastic, a really, really good account, a historical novel, an account of um, Scott Odian's *Memnon*. It ends with an account of the siege of, Hal- of Alexander's sieges of the city of Halicarnassus. It's amazingly, it's incredibly exciting reading about you know, these great, big, huge war machines just. Smashing the walls apart, and Alexandra's troops just pouring through, absolutely enraged at this point because it's taken them quite a while to take Halicarnassus and just the absolute carnage. And it's incredibly exciting. And I'm sure the only thing more exciting than reading and writing about that thing, is that kind of stuff, is actually taking part in it because people have always done it. People are absolutely desperate to do it. People find all kinds of complicated justifications in God and religion and their sacred soil and their children and their wives and all kinds of things for why they ought to do it at every opportunity. And it's writing about, I'm trying to write about that kind of, that paradox.
3: Or people just cosplay. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I'm a wizard. (laughs) (laughs) Take that. How much
1: cool would it be if you go, take that, and then actually blow something up?
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole different layer there.
0: You mentioned uh, Grimdark becoming a little more popular, a little yeah. more mainstream. Uh, we were noticing a trend in 2017 with the ladies stepping yeah. into the Grimdark fold, including past guest Deborah A. Wolf and forthcoming guest Anna Stevens, another Anna. Uh, what do you think of the rise of female authors in Grimdark? And do you feel there's kind of like a sense of camaraderie between you and your fellow Grimdark authors?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's in some ways, it, obviously it's, it's a lovely coincidence that there are three of us being published. Um, I keep trying to think about Grimdark authors who haven't been earlier, other Grimdark authors, grim-dark author, female Grimdark authors you want, Deborah Ray-Wolf, me and Anna Stevens. and um, I can't actually think, of, I have not been able to think of any. I mean, it's just a slight, Grimdark has all, it does, it does seem, I think there probably are more male authors and probably more male readers. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a bizarre coincidence about me and Anna Stevens that we got picked up, both we both published when the UK were both published by Harper Voyager, who seemed to be the big publishing house in the UK for kind of darker epic fantasy, obviously they published Mark Lawrence and George R. R. Martin in the UK and they briefly, and um, Pete Newman, and they published the um, the YA trilogy that um, Joe Abercrombie did. So I think they kind of, so in some ways it kind of people, can. Kind of, it's was natural that both, because both of us are writing grimdarkish books they would both be published by Harper Voyager but there is this bizarre coincidence we've both been published in the same month Emma, names of both Anna um, I mean in some ways, probably is coincidence or just as grimdark becomes yeah becomes bigger as more people write in the field more female authors and more authors of colour are going to emerge simply because if you have more people writing you have the statistical likelihood of people being published who aren't kind of the traditional straight straight, um, white men kind of goes up. Uh, I'm not sure whether perhaps publishers were looking a bit for female authors. But yeah, I mean, me and Deborah and Anna, we talk, we try and promote each other a bit on Facebook. Um, It gets slightly awkward because people often strongly associate us in a way that, I mean, as was sort of pointing out the other day, Harper of, of Voyager UK published Pete Newman and they published Peter V. Brett. And they Peter Newman and Peter V. Brett are both called Peter, and they are both men, both men with short hair, white men with short hair, and their books have got both got demons have all have got demons in them, both see both of their series. But no one of talks about them as like, you know, the Peters and links all the time. <laughs> but me and Anna get linked, me and Anna Stevens get to get linked all the time, which is slightly kind of um I mean, it's difficult. A couple of people have confused us because obviously, and you do want to kind of point out, well, you know, there are how many, so how many fantasy novelists, epic fantasy novelists called Mark can you think of? But, um, you know, it's kind of, but yeah, no, we do kind of, we do sort of transport each other. And um, there was a kind of friendly rivalry, me, me and Deborah were having. I think, I think I've think challenged Deborah to fight at one point, actually, we're kind of <laughs> it's sort of like, well, sort of, we'll, we'll do it properly. Oh yeah, we'll do it properly. We'll whip out, get out the chainmail bikinis and the big swords and all we'll <laughs> fight for the title of Queen of Grimdark. But, um, you know, it's kind of it's it's just nice. There's just there is a lovely community. I mean, I, it's kind of depressing. But if people I say who are my who would I consider my friends, I kind of read off this list of names. Like kind of oh yeah, like you guys are my friends, and like Mike Fletcher's my friend, and Deborah Waywolf's my friend. I've never met these people. They're just people I talk about about books on Facebook. Not friends <laughs> But you know it is a real sense of community and kind of us kind of talking and and sort of chatting and supporting each other and just kind of appreciating the kind of slightly weird world of being a writer and of genuinely all loving this loving the books and loving loving being
3: part of the world. Well me and Rob have never met each other either. <laughs> probably never will.
1: You've never met. Nope. Oh. I don't I
3: don't I don't want to meet him. <laughs> Sounds like an asshole to me. <laughs> actually, if I met most of the authors on the that we've interviewed, like I sound probably more comfortable talking to people in this atmosphere, but if I was actually face to face with somebody, I would be like, Hey, uh <laughs> what's going on? I like your book. You know, <laughs> away. So there is a certain element of like social media and Skyping and all these kind of things that that are more comfortable for for people that I'm assuming are more extroverted, um, and I think that that plays in well with building literary communities more easily because you can uh, obviously meet more easily than you c- could in real life. Because um, you know I'm in Japan and Rob is in wherever he is, and you know there's probably very little chance of us maybe. If we do, that would be awesome, but probably not going to happen.
0: No. Not well, Because I'm in America and you're in Japan, and why would you even want to come here? <laughs> so. Yeah. Not much going on. Eventually. Maybe. Okay. Um, so you have a uh, short story, actually, uh, based in the... Empires of Dust.
1: Dust. yes.
0: Empires of Dust. Dust yes. Series. Um, tell us a little bit about that uh, short story you have in Grimdark Magazine, issue number twelve.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's out. That came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's called Red Glass, and it actually came. The whole story was originally just based around a, a joke of someone. I had this a really stupid joke that I really like about something like. Um, that's bloody glass that is yeah underneath the blood it's just glass which i thought was absolutely fucking hilarious i just thought like this is the best joke ever um and the whole story was kind of based around that but um no it's um a story about a young girl called lie who is on the front cover of grimdark magazine 12 looking incredibly freakily just like i did when i was about her age when i had i had longer hair and i was kind of dyed blacky red and she just looks terrifyingly it just she looks so much like I did when I was a bit younger, which is like really freaky because obviously the the artist drawing it had nothing but this. She's not even described in the story, and he just drew me somehow um, when I was a bit younger with different hair. But yeah, so it's about a young girl called Lyde who it lives in a city which is caught up in the battles going. There's caught up in the war that's going on it's slightly ambiguous when it's uh, when the war is happening but there are kind of there are huge scenes of conflict and war and massed armies advancing across the continent in of broken knives in the past there's a kind of mythic semi-mythic past a great war leader called amrath who led his armies to conquer the world and then there's kind of in book two and three, in books two and three of the Empires of Dust, there's kind of further battles taking place in the now, here and now. And the story, so the story is about a young woman who's living in a city where just peacefully, she's just a kind of a normal teenage girl living a life, a normal sort of city, sort of kind of dark age or bronze age kind of city, archaic sort of ancient history city, like in an ancient city, and then a war comes to her city and she becomes caught up. She actually ends up and she ends up masquerading as a soldier and then becomes involved in, becomes drawn into the war, in, drawn into the, into becoming a combatant. And okay, it's just, it's, it's a story about someone awakening into violence and being part of a Carter com- conflict and becoming drawn into being part of an army and what that might feel like. So, yeah, I mean, I, I I'd, again, I can't. I don't really know where it came from. It just um it's a is interesting to me to kind of think about experience, people's experiences in absolutely extreme situations. So she, the book opens with her in the story opens with her in a sea in this sort of inner siege situation, her city falling to the enemy, and it's just sort of trying to explore that kind of absolutely how how one might respond to that absolutely extreme situation, how would one respond, and what would you do? It was quite consciously written with her as a woman, as a young woman, because, I mean, I don't, Broken Knives itself has very few female characters. I think there are, oh, I think there are all of, th- I think there might be all of two named female characters. No, three. There are three, four, no, four. There are four named speaking female characters in Broken Knives. And the first 20, there is not, there's not a single woman in something like the first 25 pages I suddenly sort of discovered with absolute horror. It's not, you know, I I didn't want to write a sort of Cameron Hurley-esque, there are, you no. Know, this is about women. I was writing. Wanted to. I was writing very kind of. I was writing sort of mythical, epic fantasy, very much based on things like the Iliad and Beowulf and the Eddas, which oddly enough have very female, few female characters in them. Um, but then so in Red Glass, I deliberately wanted to write very much from the point of view of a a young woman and write about her as a as a warrior character, as kind of as much a warrior as a, as the male characters, where her her gender doesn't actually have much. Her gender has no kind of relation; has no real. It's not germane to what happens to her at all. But it's just. Um, I, I wanted her to be a young woman, and I wanted. I was so pleased when she went on the cover. As um, I mean, the, the cover. Into issue eleven had Deborah Wolfe's story the cover story, and that also had a younger, had a young woman, and I was really quite pleased with that. And um, it's just again, it's really nice to see. Stories with female protagonists, which aren't, but which aren't, you know, kind of. I'm deliberately going to write a story which is making some great feminist comment by having all the soldiers as women, or having someone as the one female soldier making some kind of great long speech about how she is a woman, she can do things as well as a man. You just want it as taken as re- read that there are male, soldiers there are some people, there are men and women in this world, and some of the men and women fight, and some of them don't. So yeah, that's 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 where it came from.
0: Do you think um, a reader should uh, pick up the novel first and then check out that short story or can they just jump into that short story? They can jump into that short
1: story. Um yeah, I mean it's very kind of it's it's pretty self-contained. It's not um you don't need to know about the way the world works. It also I mean I don't expl- I don't explain much. I have to say I don't um I, d- I definitely do kind of info-dumpy things because I, I love info-dump, but I don't explain if that makes any sense. Um a lot of things I don't give any kind of neat explanation for why things are in the same way that, I mean, it's like, you know, Baker doesn't one of the things I absolutely love about the Prince of Nothing trilogy is the way that it is really, there's so much stuff in the background, but you don't really, you don't, you never know about it. It's not kind of some kind of detailed, it's not you don't sit down and have someone, I know I'm going to clarify you all the history of all the things that happened previously, I'm going to clarify to you the history and religious system of this world it's just it's just kind of hinted at there in the back and I, back, of the, back in kind of in the detail in the novel you can just kind of you know there's this incredibly rich complicated history and mythology and philosophies underlying all the kind of, underlying the kind of, the cultures and the interactions between the characters in The Prince of Nothing but you don't you don't know you don't get it explained and i I love that and i I try and do something similar where it's not explained so yeah you don't it's probably is a slightly mysterious story but (laughs) reading the court of broken knives probably isn't going to help you understand it (laughs) and the other way around also
0: be sure to listen for part two of our interview with anna smith spark in just one week right here on the grim tidings podcast subscribe on itunes google play stitcher or podbean and visit us online at the